0: Hey, it's Desiree. Do you have a question you want answered on the podcast? Well, email us at fadersuppodcast at yahoo.com or DM us on Instagram at fadersuppodcast. This is the Faders Up Podcast.
1: Faders Up Podcast. I'm Zar.
0: I'm Pat. I am Desiree.
1: It's your boy, O'Shea. You know what to do. And this is a podcast about pro audio and beyond. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, you can email us at fadersuppodcast at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Instagram at fadersuppodcast, and you can join our Facebook group at Faders Up Podcast. And also make sure you subscribe to our new mailing list so you get updates, giveaways, and special product discounts. All, and all the guests and hosts that appear on the show will be in the show notes. Uh, so this episode, we are joined by Sean Daly of Sweetwater Sound Studios.
0: Woo-hoo! Welcome.
1: We're going to talk about live sound and some things going on with Sweetwater Studios. Uh, how are you doing today, Sean? Doing well. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, some live sound and, and uh, some things that Sweetwater Studios has going on uh, today. Uh, but uh, for those who don't know you, Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Um, well, I'm uh, an audio engineer, producer, work at uh, Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and uh, moved down here about three years ago. Um, but uh, spent most of my uh, teenage years and adult life as uh, some sort of audio engineer um, in uh, high school, got a little bit uh, interested in recording my own band, and that turned into a career of touring, where I did uh, some work as a backline tech uh, that then funded my studio gear obsession. And, uh, that sort of turned into more audio recording than, uh, than I ever thought I'd be doing. But, uh, so I've been in the studio game and live sound game for probably close to 20 years and, uh, yeah, just, uh, just loving doing it every day. So it's kind All of right. where I, where I'm at at the moment.
1: Now, senior your bio, you did some work for Avril Lavigne. What did you do for her?
2: Uh, so I, I started with her around 2004, I worked with her for about 18 months, went to 50 different countries with her as a drum tech and playback technician. So I did, uh, took care of the drummer and then all of the uh, backing tracks, which was fairly minimal. She was sort of, uh, you know, it was a pretty straightforward rock band, but there was a click track and some drum loops and stuff. And so, uh, but got to see a lot of places, got to do a lot of cool things and meet a lot of really great people that sort of, uh, continued, uh, to be, uh, friends of mine through, through the years in the industry. So
1: nice it's definitely one of my favorite artists (laughs) what are y'all experience with live sound has anyone done
3: any live sound yeah yeah um i've done a little bit um so of course when i was at the high school you know i was responsible for teaching and training students on how to use analog and digital live consoles and helping run sound for like school plays pep rallies and then um you know, I was like an alternate uh, for the live sound team at my church, so I would do that sometimes, but it wasn't like a, a every week, you know, every Sunday thing. I've
1: done live sound here and there. Really don't prefer live sound. Like, I'll do live sound for a day, but a full-time gig, not really my thing. Mostly, I don't know, setting up like talent shows or little performances or stuff like that. I've done a Maybe one or two things at a club before. What about you, Desiree?
0: Hmm, word, I've um I used to do sound for a church back in the day, and I feel like everyone kind of gets their start in a church one way or another. Um, but I did sound for them for about a year and a half, and a few other churches here and there. Um, that church would even have like events um at night and on weekdays. I do with the sound there also. It's it's not for me. It's really not for me. Um, because I think while I enjoy like the atmosphere, I couldn't get used to the in the moment demands. And my anxiety just would not allow for me to just sit down, think clearly through an issue and, you know, figure it out because it's a lot of on the fly type of stuff. And then especially when you're working, I don't know, in an environment where sound isn't a priority because they, you know, just had a lot of different things things that I could help improve with the sound, but without the support behind it, you know, it was real difficult to do that. So mm-hmm. um, just those type of experiences kind of turned me off from live sound. And then again, just the, when something goes wrong, you have to be there to fix it. Like, right. Period. I hate, I hate
3: that pressure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like. It's mad pressure.
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, But Sean, you were saying earlier, I meant to ask you this a moment ago, but you, um, you say you've been on tour uh, with a lot of, reputable bands and acts and performances. Is that something that you are that you do by yourself or did you have a crew or a team with you?
2: So, I mean, uh I can kind of give you an overview. I mean my, my touring career uh spanned from working uh in that capacity to the last ten years of my touring career was with a band called the County Crows where I mixed front of house sound for them. I co produced some records. We recorded stuff together so uh with that uh, all of my shows were released so all the stuff that i was mixing was also being broadcast so i was kind of double duty on that making sure everything wasn't uh everything was sort of you know ready to go out to the public but um that being said in the live world sort of depends on the size of the artist but uh, for the most part there's usually at least a front of house engineer and monitor engineer uh, and then on stage depending on what's going on there'll be uh, technicians taking care of individual musicians so on on a larger tour each each musician will have their own tech with them. So guitar players, keyboard players, drummers all have their own sort of, you know, personal assistant to get their gear ready and maintained and sounding the way they like it. And then, you know, if you get into larger tours, there's a uh, crews of audio people, you know, between four and eight people that, you know, travel with all the speakers, truckloads of, of gear that get set up every day. So, there um are different capacities depending on the size of the tour, depending on the size of the event of how many people. There's uh you know, it really kind of depends on, on what you're going for. But you know, if there's uh the capacity to have more people, there's usually more people there taking care of more stuff. So mm-hmm. which is nice. It takes a little bit of the burden off. Like if I mix in front of house, I'm normally not mixing monitors, but in situations you know, in a house of worship stuff, there's a lot of, you know, one person takes care of everybody and sort of, that's a lot to do in a situation like that. So Mm -hmm. through the pandemic, I helped a few churches get their live streaming setups going. And so had a little bit of experience in that. And, you know, it's, it's a lot for someone who's not fully versed in that dealing with, you know, large format bands with a bunch of people, a lot of people singing. So that's, that's a lot of stuff on someone's plate. Who's not doing it all the time or, or, you know, dealing with a lot of, you know, issues coming up and how to you know address them quickly so
1: that's that's my beef with live sound like the whole real-time thing i'll do live sound for a night or whatever but like doing it like full-time as a job i'm like no i i much prefer the being comfortable you know the comfort of hitting undo
3: <laughs> yeah Matt, I, I think that's what kind of separates some of us that prefer studio versus live is that that luxury of being able to press undo but what would you say what are some of the kind of similarities and and connections that you make between live and studio
2: you know try and maintain a few approaches that we usually have the rule of no running on the stage even if everything's going wrong so you know you walk out there calmly even if your pants are on fire and you know figure out what the problem is but i don't know i i feel like I, i took a lot of the the you know, the workflow from live sound abroad to the studio and vice versa. So I do a lot of things fairly quickly in the studio. I do things a little bit slower in the live world, but I also sort of like try and merge the technologies where I'll take, you know, nicer microphones and, and some outboard gear and stuff like that on the road with me. And people look at me all crazy. I'm like, well, it sounds good, you know? And, and <laughs> you know, the live show for me, you know, I really, I strive to have like a really enjoyable live mix that, you know, people appreciate and you know, represents the artist that I'm working for. So that that sort of thing becomes more of a, you know, a focus of, of my workflow where I'm, you know, taking a few more extra steps where a lot of people in live sound are just trying to like run around and, and catch all of the problems. So I try and have all the things figured out. And, you know, uh, if you got one, you got none. So you usually have backups for everything, spare, you know, spare just about everything, but vocal mics and things like that, where, you know, if there is a problem, it's a quick fix to, to get that solved and, and continue with the show. And then, you know, try to work like that in the studio, too, where I don't want to stop a session and sit around and figure out a problem. I'm just going to move on and, and you know, try and adapt and overcome as quick as I can.
1: What about you, Pat? You done any live sound?
2: Uh,
4: I did a <laughs> I did a little bit of live st- sound at uh, TSU um, on a couple shows couple small concerts in the courtyard and then when I played drums I did a lot of uh, tuning drums live in the game so I mean outside of that I ain't done that much with live sound.
2: I've been known to sneak up and tune some drums in the middle of a show so I I had probably one of the the weirdest like pants on fire moments uh, in a live show when I was I was drum teching for uh, the band the Goo Goo Dolls and they were playing so we were on a big tour somewhere and uh, we're playing one of their hit songs and the snares on the snare drum snapped off. Ooh. Ooh. And oh, wow. So I reached underneath with my fingers and held on to the snares. So the snare drum sounded like a snare drum for the whole song. What? So that was pretty cool. But um, <laughs> I was laying under the drums and I had my hand like kind of like pinching the snares to the, the bottom of the drum while he was hitting it through the rest of the song. So, uh, you know, I know your hands was hurting. It's, it sucked. Yeah, no, my hands were, yeah, the tips of my fingers were all chewed up. And, yeah, no, it wasn't good. But, you know, save the song. It was, it was fun. You know, made it happen. Yeah, that's yeah. conspicuous. Yeah. Exactly.
1: We're going to uh, go ahead and get to our segment of who's been pushing faders up. And we just uh, briefly discuss what we've been working on. Uh, so, Pat, how you been pushing faders up?
4: Uh, well, I just dropped a single with Morgan Bossman called Miss Miss My Flight. It's a pretty dope record. Word. Got a whole R and B soul vibe to it, so it was dope. Up.
3: And you, and you've dropped songs with her before, right?
4: Uh, yeah. This is our <laughs> second one together. We got another one coming. I don't know when that's coming out. Okay. But yeah, this is our second one together. Cool. That's mm-hmm. what's up, man.
0: Yeah, I heard it. It's really good. Real vibey. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's
4: that's what's up. Uh, I I gotta
1: check it out. It'll uh, I'll have it in the show notes so
3: Cool. Good stuff. Uh, Desiree, what you what you uh, been working on? How you been pushing faders up?
0: Well, these internal faders, man, they're just bursting from the seams. Just keep pushing, huh? No, nah, I've just been really still just diving into Ableton. Um, I'm really impressed with myself. I've been with since I got... Trader. That's fine. Haters will hate. Um, since I got Ableton, I've been able to push. I mean, not push out, but at least start several ideas um within the past two months at least 20 and that's good for me um because when i do work i do house things and you know just trying to find time to make it all fit in um i don't know man i'm like i'm not on the verge of giving up i'm just letting go i'm just really at that point of like okay i'm a bit worn out i'm not um I'm not saying I'm not doing what I want to do, but I I feel behind in certain ways. Like I feel behind my peers in certain skill sets. So I'm really, really taking this time to just improve my skill sets, regardless of where that goes. I think the pressure of trying to make it or the idea of trying to make it is so draining, Um, especially when you talk about an industry that's so fluid and unstable. Mm -hmm. You know, the best thing Mm -hmm. you can do is just be yourself and do that and be that. Um, If you have a goal, if you have a plan, you know, if you have a goal, make a plan and follow through with it. But right now I'm really just focused on my skill set. So I start piano lessons next uh, month. I start vocal lessons next month. Look at you. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm (laughs) focusing on just uh, one aspect of production at a time. In the meantime, as I just kind of practice piano, guitar, voice, And I don't know where that's going to take me at this point, but I do know it's going to be something creative and something that's going to become a career. So I do know part of that process involves very tedious, not sexy, as O'Shea would say, things. Um, (laughs) um, Yesterday I spent pretty much the whole day, like I probably started at 3 p.m. and ended around 3 a.m. of just labeling all the sounds in my um, sound library. So I have... Mm. Damn. Yeah, about twelve hundred kick drums. Oh. Mm-hmm. that's low That's low. Oh, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> Pardon me for being. Step for ta- your game up. Right. <laughs> that's what he's saying. Well, little, shit! I, them I, little I, kicks. I'm glad I'm starting where I am because um, that took all day, and my ears started to bleed, so I had to go from headphones to computer pretty often, but um. But yeah, just going through each drum, labeling them kick one A, kick two, or kick, yeah, kick one A, kick one B, kick one C. And you know, just <laughs> cycling. I think I got up to like kick 53 Z. You know what I mean? Like. Oh, no. no. I just it it helps me organize my sounds like if I'm making beats and I'm like, dang, I really like the kick I used in this beat I made a week ago. Instead of like having some arbitrary name, you know, for the kick, I can more quickly, and easily recall that kick or even start to, you know, especially if I use it over and over again, I can recall it to memory. I don't know. That's just how my mind works. So that is a very non-sexy thing I've been doing. That's just how I've been pushing up faders. How about you, O'Shea?
3: Man, uh, that's what's up, man. Thanks for sharing. Um, with me, I've been doing, like, some kind of file management, non-sexy stuff as well as some of the cool, sexy stuff. So what uh, the coolest thing I just figured out how to do, because now that I got a MacBook Pro and a Mac Mini, I've been doing more stuff on my MacBook Pro, and I've been trying to figure out the best way to keep my files synced. Um, Without an external hard drive and of course we know iCloud but i don't by default i don't save my beats to iCloud so long story short i figured out a way using the automated app on the mac to when i save uh, files to my beat folder it automatically backs it up in my iCloud folder Um, and was able to do that that's a free app that comes with every mac um, not third-party software Um, so i've been doing that as well as messing with this new plugin called Studio by Studio Link. Uh, shout out to Zar. He the one that first told me about it. Um and so it's kind of like Splice mixed with contact in one. Um so it's a it's a plugin, um, but it but it it's a cloud-based plugin, a virtual instrument with a with a loop browser built into it. So instead of having to go to the Splice app, download it, then drag it in Logic the instrument is already inside of Logic. So i just been messing with that, seeing if that's something that I want to commit to as part of my workflow.
0: Um, sounds a lot like Arcade, though. How's that different from it, Arcade? So it's, it's the same.
3: so it has that in, it's similar to Arcade. Here's how it's different. So it not only has loops, but it has one shots and it has actual playable instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, it has MIDI um, in it as well. Um and it's from different um different providers. So like arcade, all the arcade is by output. You know what I'm saying? By that one company, this company. I mean it's stuff from Studio Link. It's stuff from like other uh sound um makers or sound providers. So um the layout it looks sexy. I mean,
4: sexy.
3: Yeah, man. Y'all know me, man. If we're mm-hmm. gonna be on a computer, I'm looking at like I want it to look appealing. Um, but we can do a whole another review on that another time. But that's how I've been pushing faders up, just to get my file management right and working with uh, new VSTs. That's what's up. Uh, what about you, Zar? How you been pushing faders up?
1: Uh, I've been still looking for new monitors. Uh, put a deposit down on the Barefoot Footprint O2s. Oh, they are back ordered until July. And I want to try the Don Audio Lyd forty eight. They're back ordered until June, I think. So, and I'm just sitting back waiting on them. Uh, I'm going to review. I'm in the middle of reviewing the uh, Smart EQ three. Sonable just updated the oh. Smart EQ, uh, which is well. If you follow the podcast, this is our audi- uh, artificial intelligence episode. We talked about. Uh, artificial intelligence, and I believe Sonable was one of the ones that we discussed yeah, with their EQ. I, so. I remember
3: that episode.
1: I'm uh, putting it through his paces to see how you know, how it handles, and so far the the AI of it works pretty well for EQing uh, tracks. But I want to really dive in and compare it to Isotope to see what um, mm. to see how they differ. Okay. Uh, what about you, Sean? How you been pushing faders up?
2: i've been pushing faders up on a bunch of uh live stream performances uh that we pre-recorded so in the past couple of weeks we had a couple go out that have been uh you know hour-long shows that we recorded so dealing a lot with um a bunch of multi-tracked audio trying to make it sound really good syncing stuff with video sort of going back and forth on revisions so that's been that's been my world for the past week and uh doing a little tracking between that i had a record uh last week with the guy Stu ham who's sort of like a virtuoso bass player played with steve vi and joe satriani so we made sort of a, a prog bass leap melody record there were a lot of like super intricate bass parts and stuff so
0: word word
2: yeah a lot of engineering a lot of mixing i've been mixing i don't know probably 10 to 15 songs a week for the past little while so it's been uh it's been keeping me on my toes quite a bit so wow um yeah and then did a did a and i think i had probably my largest mix session last night i've ever had i had uh 188 tracks Uh, (laughs) by the time i was done i had a i had a uh, r&b artist come in with a song that was already produced uh and then we like recut it live so they could shoot video to it and then we mixed back in all the elements that were in the production so by the time we had like stacked a (laughs) bunch of vocals pulled all the key parts in the drum loops and all all the the different elements i like i looked at the bottom i was like I think my computer's going to turn off. So, but uh, <laughs> uh, we got through it, and it, it sounded super cool. And so, yeah, oh, it was it was fun, now. but it was keeping me on my toes. I had a couple of reboots, and Melodyne was not being so nice. But uh, yeah, no, it's been good. It's been busy around here, so it's been it's been nice. Lots of audio, but uh, but it turned out good. But it was fun. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how I've been pushing up faders lately. So that's what's up.
1: So we're going to get into our main topic here of live sound and Sweetwater Studios. And so Gear Fest this year is going to be online. It won't be in person, uh, which is unfortunate for me because I was really looking forward to coming to Gear Fest, uh, which I do every year. I'm a frequent consecutive Gear Fest attendee. I love coming up to Fort Wayne and... One of my favorite things to do in Fort Wayne is to check out the cool spots to eat. So a personal question for me, uh, Sean, what are some of your favorite places to eat in Fort Wayne?
2: So uh, I finally, I kind of confirmed my suspicions, but there's a a local pizza joint called Olay's and they do double crust pizzas, which is sort of a, a riff on like a Chicago deep dish where they take a pizza and they do a crust, sauce, cheese toppings, and then another crust and they bake it sort of like a calzone and they take it out of the oven and then put another layer of sauce and cheese on it and put it back in the oven and turns into this like massive like awesome pizza pie thing. So I had someone bring me Illuminati's frozen pizza and we have a Giordano's here now so I could kind of compare my deep dish pizzas and this one smokes all of them so highly recommended. Um, Yeah they do they do great meatballs and a whole bunch of other stuff but yeah the pizza I have a hard time finding like a real slice of pizza in Fort Wayne it's been a bit of a struggle but this is like sort of like a specialty pizza that totally rocks so uh highly recommended takes 45 minutes to bake it though so you need, need a little time so nice highly recommended though hey what mm.
3: what's the name of that spot
2: olays olays okay Thanks.
1: yeah i'm definitely gonna check that out I, I think the last time i was there i went to uh the hoppy gnome yeah and that was really good and then like my new favorite spot there now is uh club soda
2: okay yeah no, there's a, in that same neighborhood, we just got a, it's sort of a, like just as the pandemic opened up, we got a, a new sort of pedestrian street down, uh, downtown called The Landing. And so there's a couple great restaurants that have opened up, uh, Mercado and, uh, Nawa is an Asian place, The Landing Barbecue and uh, Tolan, which is like farm to table. So actually a pretty decent little, uh, little food scene in downtown Fort Wayne. So it's, uh, endlessly, gr- it's continuing to grow all the time. So, by the time Gear Fest happens again, I'm sure there'll be more options that that are really rocking. So,
1: yeah, I can't wait. I also got a taste of um the the hotel I was staying at said, "Oh, you need to go get some Amish crack." <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> oh, oh yeah. The donuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, "What?" Yeah, It's, so- yeah, it's probably that's an fra- appropriate name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: probably not the great the greatest <laughs> name for those, but
1: uh, right. <laughs> so I I walk <laughs> in there and I like I lean over the counter and I'm like. I was told to ask for the Amish crack, <laughs> and she hands me a sample platter. Oh, you mean these? And uh, they're like, uh, oh, gosh. Did you really say that? I did. I'm like, I'm not okay. just walking there to ask for some crack. Like, you said it. <laughs> they're so Like, I bring a box back with me every time.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they do, like, donut holes, which are a lot more manageable than the donuts, because eating a donut, I have a beard, so, like— Having one of those, I just have this like cinnamon sugar powder all over my yeah. face after. It's kind of a mess. So, but yeah, definitely a, a Fort Wayne uh, institution. They they opened another location as well, so there's oh nice, more readily, okay. more readily accessible. So nice,
1: nice. But uh, so you know, tell us more about the the live streaming uh, performances that that you're putting on at Sweetwater Studios.
2: So. um through the pandemic, I uh, realized that, you know, there wasn't any live shows going on. I was doing a lot of, a lot of live production with Sweetwater before um, the pandemic hit. And so I, I sort of re- reintegrated myself in the studio. And uh, with my experience doing live production, I just tried to figure out a way to get um, some people in here doing some performances, doing some video, trying to create some content. So sort of started off small, uh, had a couple local... Local artists had a jazz trio. I had um, like a local metal band come into the studio and we sort of tried out a few different things and uh, seemed to go really well. Um, I kind of of enjoy that where I get to record someone and we don't have to produce a song and do a ton of overdubs. Like we just track it and we're done and I can kind of mix it and and make it sound good. That kind of saves a lot of that tedious work where I'm alone in a control room fixing things and stuff like that. So that kind of was like, enticing me to try and do some more so i reached out to a few of the sales engineers here and said hey you guys have any customers that are looking to do stuff in the pandemic and uh heard back from one of them who uh had just sold one of his clients or one of his customers a bunch of production elements for their tour for 2020 that got canceled and so they had bought a bunch of video panels, a bunch of lighting. They had programmed a whole show. It was like a 10th anniversary of a record that they put out and um, their singer had passed away a few years previous. And so there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of meaning to the fans for this record and they wanted to do something for it. So this is a band called we came as Romans. They're from Troy, Michigan and uh, they're like a metal core band. And so that was sort of the first conversation I had with like a larger artist where it was a full production recording and video uh adventure with uh like stage elements uh moving lights led panels uh multi-camera shoot tried to shoot it all in 4k recorded it in 96 24 and so really made a big effort to do uh uh you know a real deal capture here and so that was sort of our proof of concept and we shot that in september and uh so that was that was pretty cool that was kind of all hands on deck but at the same time we we're just like okay how's this gonna work and and it really kind of came together and we ended up shooting uh them and another band and we did two whole sets with them that got released independently and so it's been in an interesting sort of uh landscape to sort of deal with because uh we learned very quickly that bands don't have a lot of money uh to put into this stuff and fans don't have a lot of interest in in them on the on a large scale, like your diehard fans will definitely come and see them and stuff. But um, we tried to do it in a way where it was kind of you know we, we took into account that you know it would be cost prohibitive to make this super you know super expensive for people to do, and so we figured out a way to do it effectively with all the resources we had in our building. We have a video team that shoots all of our YouTube content. We have lighting and video um production elements that we can pull from from our different venues so we are pretty much a turnkey solution for anyone that wants to do it so that became um you know that became a pretty good calling card to get some more artists in and so we just did another round of them and we released i guess in the last month i think four or five full streaming sets came out and like they're a lot of work so like you know even even one of them the first one we did was like two hundred and forty hours of video editing because we were trying to figure out how to get all the cameras together their systems weren't totally up to snuff and so you know putting that all together really took a lot of man hours and so uh we got a little bit of a system going where we shot uh four more of them and uh over the last two weeks we had two of them go live i got another one where i'm you know fixing some vocals and, and and tightening up some things before i dive into mixing and uh we Had the second We Came as Roman's one go out, and I mean, like, those guys are doing pretty well. I think they had the first one we did that was in November, they had about 3,000 people tuned into it. Oh, good, nice! And then, you know, th- this most recent one that they sold tickets to they were a little more, more expensive, uh, I think they had close to 1,500 people attend, so hmm. decent numbers on some of those. And we did one with this uh, blues guitarist, Jared James Nichols, and he had like a signature guitar from Epiphone come out around the same time, and so coincided with some of that stuff and you know i i don't know what the numbers were on them but it, it's you know i think people are really really missing live concerts and we're trying to provide you know an option for that but it's really the engagement with the fan is is the most difficult thing like we can do some super cool stuff but like if people aren't going to watch it that's kind of it's kind of tricky but um but that being said we, we have a pretty cool system here we have a, a theater i'm sitting in control room a right now and Across the hall, we have a a performance theater with a stage and lighting rig in there. And so I run Dante preamps across the hall and sort of track everything in Studio A. And so it's all super, super high end, you know, mic preamps and microphones that I would use in the studio to record all these things. And they've been they've been turning out great. It's just uh, I, I feel now that we have the restart of the entertainment industry sort of happening we're just going to turn this into when people come to Sweetwater, we can do a live at Sweetwater and do a really cool production for people. So, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll see. I mean, every day it sort of changes a little bit, but it seems like shows are coming back soon, which is good. I think people are going to dig that. And But we can still, with what we have here and what we've done, we can really provide people with a, a really cool product. Or like when artists come through, we can create some content that's really engaging. So,
1: yeah. So yeah so that's so that's what i was i was thinking so they're performing in the auditorium or you said the the performance theater yeah and then you're monitoring that from studio a
2: yeah and so these um i'm gonna use air quotes but they're live not live um so like we're recording everything um you know we've fixed a few things on a few different performances but it gives us the time to do post-production so we can get all the the edits right in the video i can Mm -hmm. clean up all the audio it's not like a we're not blasting it out. We're taking our time to try and make it good, clean it up, and, and you know, make sure all the shots are right and get, getting rid of the bad ones and trying to put the show together like a, it's a finished product. So more like a, you know, live DVD production when those were a thing. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, that that's sort of the thing where we're – I'm literally – the only thing I'm doing in the studio when they're going on is capturing the audio. So Gotcha. And uh,
1: Studio A, that's the one that's closest to the street? Yes. Okay, okay, yeah. And that's, I mean, to be able to monitor in the studio, be able to monitor what's happening live in the studio is, I feel, would be much more enjoyable. Because a lot of these places, you know, you go to do live, don't have the best sound or the best monitoring environment.
0: Yeah, I used to, when I was uh, engineering for the church, that was really a huge factor.
2: Yeah, no, and it, it's been awesome. I mean, we have big ATCs in, in Studio A here, so I can sort of, I can hear everything that's going on. And, you know, that's... That's sort of my thing. I mean, we'll probably touch on it a little bit later in this conversation, but trying to sort of bridge that gap of like, I know it's a live performance, but I'm going to use the best microphones that I've got for the application. And, you know, I can hear the problems and like sitting in here, I can hear, oh, there's like, you know, buzz on this. There's, you know, you're not in a live venue trying to like gorilla record something. We're in a proper studio recording something properly and can chase down all those problems and make sure that the audio is sort of the most pristine as possible. So, which is pretty cool
0: were were so who chooses the gear that goes into the sweetwater studios
2: good question um for the most part uh a lot of the gear that was here was here before i got here so they did a a big switch over from a euphonics to an avid s6 with a bunch of rupert neve preamps and summing mixer and so that changeover happened probably i guess five or six years ago um and then From there, we kind of, you know, there's two other uh, full-time engineers and another like executive producer songwriter that work here. And so we sort of usually get together and uh, try and have an agreement on, on any sort of purchases. If something cool shows up, you know, we'll try and make a push for it. There's also a lot of people that will leave us gear to use as demos and, you know, new stuff rolls in the door. We're pretty lucky to be in Sweetwater where, you know, the newest products, there's like a demo. There's, you know, we have the opportunity to get our hands on things that would be a little bit more inaccessible to some people. And sometimes they don't stick around. Sometimes people, you know, leave them with us for a while, but it gives a good opportunity to try some things. But other than that, like the studio infrastructure itself is pretty, pretty set. We have in Studio A, we have an Avid S6 with, we have 27 Rupert Neve 5052 preamps in this room. So that's like tracking and control studio B has an AWS 948 and SSL console that's all hooked up and ready to go. And so we use that for mixing and tracking and then SSL trains people in there on that console. So they bring our sales engineers down and they do SSL training. So it's sort of a, a dual purpose room and we have five, set up in that room. So we've done a couple five, projects, not a lot, but that's, that's where that can happen in here. And then studio C is sort of a hybrid, where we have a dangerous two bus plus and some dangerous converters. And, but all of our rooms are pro tools, HDX with the Avid matrix converters. And we have Aviom systems. And so everything sort of stays the same between the three rooms, which is super cool. So we can take a session and we don't have to redo the IO and the headphone things show up in the same spot and they're labeled the same. So it really kind of keeps a fluid workflow between studios. So, you know, normally our, uh, our workflow around here is to try and make things translate between rooms. And so, so far, so good. But um, yeah, we're on a on a hunt for new computers soon. I think right, we're on trash cans here and they're kind of getting on their last legs. So that's kind of the next thing. So we'll see how that goes.
0: So do y'all buy the? Have to buy from Sweetwater? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the studio
2: is, is technically a separate business, and we have assets and we have you know expenses and stuff like that, just like uh, any normal business would be. And so, okay, Sweetwater is in the business of selling stuff, and even we have to buy things. So um, you know, it it is. There, there are some perks, but at the same time, it's it's a business. So you know, there's not everything is free. The store is across the hall. You can sign things out, but you know, we we try and keep those for the customers. And you know, we have what we need here. So,
1: mm. well, so you don't just go to the warehouse and point to something.
0: <laughs> Give me that. No, no, we can do it on the computer, <laughs> and then they bring it to my, us. It's cool. So. Yeah. Oh, digital. Yeah. yeah. No,
2: I mean, and that's the. Yeah, and the candy's free. Candy's everywhere. So I have a bowl of candy right next to me right now. So. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's one of those things where you know, especially in these these shortages of stock that we've been dealing with lately, like things that are valuable or that are like people want. Like, uh, I heard a rumor that uh, we have uh, for the Sweetwater sales engineers, we have something called the Sales Resource Center where there's a bunch of demo equipment that they can take home and like get to use a Telefunken 251 or you know a dangerous compressor, you know. W- various pieces of high-end gear that they may have never had their hands on. So we have all that in like a lockup where you can sign it out and, you know, swipe your badge and, and take it home. But uh, through the pandemic, I guess Kelly Clarkson lost uh, her Telefunken 251 uh, in her divorce, mm-hmm. and so we sold her our loner one so she could continue to record vocals because she loves the mic so much. So... You know that that kind of trumped the guys in the the sales floor getting to to mess around <laughs> with the ten thousand dollar mic that we ended up selling it to a great customer of ours and so she could continue creating. So
0: what? You know, I'd be so mad. It's, I mean, it's, <laughs> I I
2: don't know but that that's the rumor I heard. So I just you know uh, I, I, we we took care of her and made sure that she got what she needed and so because we were back ordered deep on those Telefunken was waiting on parts and stuff and so we had one sitting here that was. Uh, able to be refurbished and so yeah uh you know things like that where we can kind of take care of people i think that, that we always usually end up doing the
0: right thing so uh, it's pretty cool nice yeah that's cool but I was just wild how i'd be so mad if i got divorced and my husband got to keep you got the fancy mic yeah i don't know yeah never even uses it yeah
1: <laughs> that's one of my favorite vocal mics too
0: yeah i was just i
2: was using one last night i stacked a lot of those 188 tracks with some 251 so um But yeah, so yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, those are some of the, the, those are some of the cool things about that. But yeah, it's not a free for all. It's not going to the warehouse and grabbing what you want and leaving. So they would get really angry if we did that, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I can see that for sure.
4: (laughs) Is Sweetwater Studios available to the public?
2: Uh, Sure is. Yeah. Um, Sweetwaterstudios.com, our website has contact info. But yeah, we are a commercial facility that uh, prioritizes, you know, uh, outside public customers before we do any internal stuff. We do do a lot of, uh, you know, promotional stuff. We do, you know, content for marketing and stuff like that here. But our goal is to be a fully functioning, you know, commercial studio space where, you know, anybody can can access these studios and this gear and these people um, anytime that they would like. So um yeah reaching out through the website gets you in touch with our studio manager who will hopefully find a way to make your project happen so but that's that's that is kind of fun it's like the disneyland of music gear here and so this is a place you can come play if you want so
3: so with with your background and experience and
2: impressive resume how do you balance live and studio work um i I had a weird, or I had a good balance of live and studio. So I'd go on the road for six weeks at a time, maybe more, maybe less. And I'd come back and be at home for a couple of months and do studio stuff. And I kind of bounced back and forth. And it was kind of a nice balance between not getting burnt out on one or the other. But um, the skill sets that I see that like really need, are are important in both aspects are, you know, having really good communication skills. Like if you can talk to an artist and you're doing live sound and you can go walk up to the singer and be like, hi. I'm Sean. What do you need? I'm ha- here to help, you know, and engage with someone and, you know, really kind of, you know, get out in front of having problems and, and just sort of communicate well and, and find out what the artist is looking for. What do they want to sound like? You know, can you be a partner with them? And I feel like in the studio, it's sort of the same thing. If you can engage with a, an artist that comes in rather than being the guy in the chair that just doesn't say much, you know, like that, that really kind of makes the experience better for the artist, makes them feel more comfortable. I mean, the psychology of doing. You know, this job, you're pretty much supporting someone's art sonically, right? So you want to make sure that you're giving them what they're looking for. And so engaging with people, you know, being being at least a little bit outgoing or having enough confidence to walk up to someone and talk to them. And then also when someone asks you for something, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, doubt what goes on, especially in monitor mixing or there's a lot of, you know name-calling or, you know, blame-throwing, and so, you know, being able to kind of hold your own in a in a high-stress situation is something that, like, really kind of, you know, s- would set someone apart in, in this in- industry where they can, you know, deliver what they need to without having to kind of cave to someone getting in their grill about stuff, and so that that's sort of, you know, a tricky thing, uh, but... We talked a little bit about troubleshooting and stuff like that, like I don't know things where you're kind of on your toes all the time, you know, seeing problems, fixing problems, being being alert, being aware, um, that stuff. But I feel I feel like it kind of, you know, obviously I do sound in a studio and I do live sound in a venue, but like I don't differentiate much of like what I do or my workflow to things, and and that sort of is more of an approach of like how I approach. Uh, either one of them is like, you know, try and be friendly to the people I'm working with, Try and you know, be assertive of what I'm doing without being, you know, a bully or, you know, bossy and like, you know, just try and engage with people so that I find out what they're looking for and let them know what I can do for them. And then, you know, just be, be able to provide that.
3: How how important would you say it is t- for being someone that's even killed and kind of laid back and good with troubleshooting when problems do arise? Yeah,
2: the, be, being sort of cool under pressure, that that's a big one. I mean, and I think for both, either way, even if everything, you know, everything goes wrong, you need to sort of maintain, you know, you can't let the artist know that everything's broken and nothing is right or you've deleted all the files. You know, you got to sort of you know, you have to play it cool enough to make sure that you can maintain your job um, if you do have a job or you're getting paid to do it. I mean, that's kind of the thing is kind of understanding how to manage those sort of emotions when everything does go wrong and you got to kind of keep going and keep plowing ahead. And, you know, whether it be in the studio with a piece of gear that breaks or, you know, a session that crashes and you lose some stuff or, you know, tons of feedback at a live show and someone's pointing the finger at you, like just being able to sort of, you know, at least accept the responsibility of it and then hopefully, you know, move forward and, and just not have a meltdown Um because you, you, the show's going to keep going on the session. Maybe you'll get replaced with someone, but you know, those are the kind of things where you, if you can maintain, you know, a high stress situation and get through it to the other side, then I think that you'll continue to get work and people will want to work with you if you can handle that sort of stuff. So,
1: so you mentioned being cool when problems come up. So what are some common problems that can happen in live sound?
2: (laughs) Uh, very, there's a, there's a lot of them. Um, There's a lot of variables that go on in in a a live production that you know. I think you really just got to make sure that everything is functioning before the show, and that that's something that um, we did pretty um, pretty much every time. You know, there was a break between shows. Like if we did, you know, a sound check in the afternoon, and there was an opening act and stuff, we always line checked everything. Everything got line checked before the show, right before the show, no matter what. And so uh, we double checked triple checked things before the show would happen to sort of preemptively, you know, deal with any issues. Um And then once that, you know, once the show got going uh, any sort of show, it's like whatever you can do to sort of adapt with whatever you've got left. And so, you know, I've had, you know, microphones die trying to make sure like, I know it seems silly, but like tight mic stands are like, you know, tighten all the mic stands, make sure the mic stands aren't falling over or droop and, you know, make sure all the cables are connected properly. Like, on larger productions, multi pair snakes, so there's like a twist together connector. Make sure that's done nice and tight. Make sure that all of the stuff that someone can trip on, people that can, you know, rip something out, all that stuff is sort of taken care of, so that it you know mitigates any possible problems. But then once the show's going, uh, kind of do anything you need to do to keep the show going. Um, you know, there's uh, we talked a little bit about outboard gear and stuff. I used to tour with a lot of like studio grade outboard gear. And for the most part, a lot of it worked really well. And then there's some other pieces that didn't. And, you know, I would have to either, you know, uh, push on them or punch them lightly in the middle of the show to kind of <laughs> get them to work again. And so uh, I had, I had uh, you know, one of my favorite pieces of gear, the Empirical Labs Distressors, uh, I had them snap off of the face plates and hang in the back of the rack. And I didn't even realize it, but they were working totally fine. Uh, you know, like a, like a rough ride on a, on a bad highway, uh, it kind of destroys gear, uh, that's not mounted properly. So, you know, there's been, there's, I, I've been through a lot of different stuff. A lot of the things that, uh, that I ended up having to deal with were problems that I created for myself. So mm-hmm. I did get more involved. I had more gear. I had more things plugged in, you know, I started a big festival in Europe once and I didn't get a chance to hear my stuff through the PA. I just checked it with my headphones and it was going to the console, I had a bunch of inserts and my effects rack had like a loose IEC in the back of it and it fell out. So the band starts, there's like 30 or 40,000 people there and there's like no drums. And I'm like, okay. And like ripping everything apart and like within, you know, probably 30 to 45 seconds, I had everything back to normal. But you know, that's, that's why you check everything before the show starts and then you check it again and then you make sure you check it one more time. So um That, that sort of stuff is like you know making sure that when you know that something is failing or that's broken that you have a spare making sure that you check all that stuff making sure that it's like if it's something you can't get your hands on maybe you shouldn't be using it you should find something that you can get to of or you can have something to back up so when they're like in you know really important situations that's you know it, it, the the spare is pretty much your lifeline for that, you know, when the lead vocal dies or he drops it and throws it into the crowd and you're like, Oh, cool. There, there goes the mic. Um, you know, you have another one and you hand it to him and you, you send someone or you, you just deal with that later. So yeah. that, that's sort of uh, that's, that's, that's my best advice is just to make sure you double check everything. And then, and, and then if you, if you can have something to replace, you know, have a spare, have a emergency backup system of sorts.
3: That, that brings up, a really good question um spare versus repair um like what things like i mean we can kind of imagine some things that are easy just to have a spare but are there instances where a spare is not an option and you have to be able to make a repair like on a spot
2: yeah i mean it's tricky um fixing things in the middle of a show is tough so uh, like uh, I talked earlier about that snare drum that fell apart during the middle of the show in that song. I couldn't fix it, but I had another one standing by. So as soon as that song was done, I swapped it out with the snare, the spare snare drum. And so then I could move on. And, and you know, I had a couple pieces of gear that I knew, knew were like weak links, a spare kick drum pedal and stuff like that. But, you know, when you get into larger, larger problems, like I had console issues on like a large format console and it was like freaking out in a show. Ah, uh, the sound company FedExed me a console overnight. so I had another one. And uh, you know, like those are the kind of things when you're on when you're on a large scale tour and you're dealing with large- scale production companies, they have the capacity, then that's you know really what their support network is. If something breaks, they can get it to you tomorrow. Mm. So if it's like integral to the show or whatever, they can get you one tomorrow. They can, there's, if there's not one there today, it'll be there tomorrow. And that's sort of you know something that uh, most people don't have the luxury. Of like owning things like that but when you get into a world of uh renting from like a like a large large audio company we use claire global for years that was the vendor that, that supported a lot of the tours i was on those guys were amazing like if you called them i could text a guy in the middle of the show and be like hey this broke the guy would be like packing a fedex box and like you know it would be going out like same day delivery things like that to like just try and solve the problem for the next day and that was that was the resources that we had uh you know when we we deal with a a vendor like that they can provide that support when you're on your own and you're trying to figure out how to like keep your own rig going i mean that's a little bit different but on like a large scale that's kind of what you're paying for when you're dealing with a rental company that has like a large inventory and a large you know presence around the around the globe even so mm-hmm. let's um
1: let's take it a second to ways. really Think about what you said there. So, you know, most concerts are at night. (laughs) Yeah. So you're contacting someone in the middle of the night that gets your message and gets the gear yeah, like the shop. The <laughs> last guy the
2: last like the last guy at the shop right say you know whatever you're east coast time and there's a you know you're saving an hour or whatever like things like that yeah if you can reach out to someone or you hit up a guy because a lot of those companies have like an la office they'll have an mm-hmm. east coast office they'll be usually a shop in nashville hey i'm gonna be there tomorrow hey can one of these shops get it out and they have a network of of their inventory they know what's where and yeah so it, it's pretty crazy and that that is you know, that's the backbone of the entertainment industry when you're touring like that, like having a lot of really expensive gear and having enough of it to go around and then having people uh you know at at the shops to get that stuff out to the tours. It's it's it's
0: quite an impressive process to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. It's intricate, man. You wouldn't I feel like you would never think that there would be that niche to be able to provide high-quality consoles at a drop of a dime and that Mm -hmm. is something somebody could be able to provide as a service
2: luckily the guy didn't have there's only a few of the ones i was using around at the time so luckily the other one was at the shop and Mm. it turned out that it was actually a cat 5 cable inside the console so it was like a 50 cent part that was causing the problem so like i don't even know what it cost to fedex a console from pennsylvania to florida overnight but (laughs) i can't imagine it's cheap but Mm -hmm. you know it, it allowed us to um to solve the problem and the show went smoothly that night and uh yeah didn't didn't have any catastrophes so but that's you know that's kind of an interesting thing i was like you know chasing down a fedex truck because the guy wasn't going to deliver it too because they wouldn't let him backstage and i was like no no
4: no that's my console (laughs) So,
2: Uh, speaking of consoles what's, what's your favorite live console so um i i worked on uh the avid profile for years and uh, the last few years that I was touring with the County Crows, I wanted to uh, improve some audio quality. So I kind of went on a hunt for uh, what would become my favorite console. And so I went to the warehouse, that Claire Global Warehouse in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, which is actually a, a hotbed for entertainment industry um, right now. They, they have a lot of uh, production companies that are established there and um, uh, kind of a weird little spot in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. But I went out there. And got them to plug in a bunch of consoles, and I had the opportunity to shoot out consoles, which is a lot of people don't get get an opportunity to get their hands on six, you know, $100,000 consoles all lined up in a row. So I found (laughs) um, uh, a Studer Vista 5, which is Studer, the company that used to make the fancy tape machines. They do broadcast consoles, and they do some live consoles. And it's uh, probably borderline vintage digital at this point. I bet you it's probably 15 years old, so this would have probably been a good 10 years or They would have been at least 10 years old when I took it on our tour. Sounded great. Did everything I wanted to. Wasn't super flexible. I set it up the way I wanted it. Didn't change anything. It sounded, it just really sounded amazing. And that's kind of why I leaned towards that um, and used that for a couple of years. Was really happy with what it did. Um, But then when I got to Sweetwater, we uh, we have a bunch of different venues here and a bunch of different consoles. So I had an opportunity to kind of dive in and try some more stuff I got my hands on some Yamaha stuff and uh, we have some Alan and Heath stuff but uh, for a couple of years when I was here I was the uh, the head of audio at the Clyde Theater which is a venue that Sweetwater owns in town and uh, I kind of got to put together a proposal to buy consoles for the venue so uh, we kind of tried to see what was the most effective to meet as many rider requirements as possible and the new at that time fairly new Avid S6L uh, was coming out and so we ended up going with a pair of those for that venue so i spent about two years mixing on that console and it was a dream and so that mm-hmm. uh you know is a familiar landscape i'm a pro tools user and avid has been you know i used their previous version of their console for many years so it was like very intuitive and it's it, the, the funny thing about it is when i got away from do, mixing my own show the same show every night and starting to mix the every random possible band that rolled in the door flexibility in a live console was so paramount so i could do anything i wanted to on that console and i could do it easily and move stuff around and i didn't have to stop the show didn't have to you know like everything was fluid it had you know uh familiar plugins like the aax dsp plugin platform worked on that and then um yeah it, it was just a really great sounding console so that kind of i would say is my uh is my number one squeeze for live consoles right now is the avid s6l and and just due to the integration with pro tools and the familiarity of all the all the software-based stuff i think it, it's a really great platform
1: mm, nice okay
2: well uh, what's what's something in the
1: recording studio world that you wish would come to the live sound world well i, I try and bring it with me
2: but uh you know fancy <laughs> gear uh <laughs> nice mics yeah, that's awesome. um no i yeah i I don't know. I kind of bridged that gap. Like I kind of mentioned a few times, like I would take, I'd take nice microphones, uh, ribbon mics, um, condenser microphones. I would normally not see outside the studio. Uh, I'd put them all over the stage and, uh, more so just, you know, trying to get the the quality that I was used to in the studio live, because I was able to kind of hear that I, I went down a path of, of really trying to represent, uh, or reproduce the best possible show. So, um, I think there's there's more opportunity for it now. I think people care about the audio quality quite a bit. I think they're the the historically the angry sound man and his complacency of using a fifty-seven on everything, uh is hopefully not really the case anymore. And people are are, are really making a push for, you know, high quality live live mm-hmm. performances and uh kind of bridging that gap. There's guys that mix, you know, Justin Timberlake and Ariana Grande that drag around tons of cool outboard gear and have, you know, Fancy consoles and like lots of nice mics, and so I think that the the recording world and the live world are sort of closer than they've ever been as far as like gear goes. But um, yeah, I don't know. I and I, and and I, I'm such a hybrid of that too that I don't ever really, you know, draw a line in the sand of, of w- what I would do in one or one place or the other. So. Well, I was going to ask you
1: about you know uh, you know SM fifty eights and fifty sevens, but I, I guess it sounds like you've really moved on from using. So I guess I'll flip my question to: Do you still use those mics in live? Then, <laughs>
2: so, so I well, I know what they sound like and I know what they can do, and in certain situations they're great. And um, you know, I've found microphones that get me what I'm looking for quicker with less EQ, less compression, or whatever processing I want mm-hmm. to do to it to achieve what I'm looking for. So you know, yeah, I can put a 57 on a guitar amp, I can put a 57 on a, on a snare drum, and I know that I'm going to work a little harder to to kind of scoop that into something that I want, the sound I'm looking for. So mm-hmm. there's other microphones that I would go to before I would go to those, but that being said, like, everybody knows that you can use those mics anywhere, and they work just fine. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's not something I'm ever scared of. I'm not like, oh, my God, there's 58s on stage. Like, you know, if if I have another option of something that I like, maybe I would take it, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I can make, hopefully I can make anything work as long as it's functioning, right? Like, I mean, but um, there are certain things that I just, you know, it, it takes me take, takes me less work to get what I'm looking for out of different microphones. And that's kind of where I make some of those choices, which learning that from the studio where I spend a little bit more time listening a little more closely gives me that kind of background to make those choices, so... So what, so what are you using for, like, a vocal mic in, in these
1: live instances?
2: Uh, my, my first choice in, like, dynamic microphones, with pretty much, you know, stage or studio, would be the Telefunken M80 and M81. Um, they, uh, to me, are sort of uh, something that I would consider to be more of a, I don't know, full fidelity 57 or 58. Uh, sound great on drums. Sound great on guitars. Sound great on like B threes. Amazing on vocals. Super tight pattern. So there's less bleed. There's less, you know, dealing with bands that have a lot of vocalists. Like with the Counting Crows, I had seven guys singing. So there was a full rock band, and everybody had two guitar amps. And like you know, it was there was a lot of noise going on. I wanted the tightest pattern microphone so that I had the less mm-hmm. the least amount of spill into those mics. So right. they really helped me. And that and that's something that I you know. That's kind of my rebuttal to not using a 58 is that I have a microphone that has a tighter pattern and a nicer EQ curve that I don't have to EQ as much. I don't have to deal with riding it as much because there's less bleed into it. And so those sort of things make my job as an engineer a lot easier if I'm choosing a microphone that helps me out with all of that. Mm. Nice, nice. Even if it cool. is
0: expensive as... Yeah, they're at least twice the price, but yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely need to come up to this, uh Sweetwater Studios. That's a whole, that's like a whole day to spend as an audio head, as an audiophile. Like, that just sounds like fun. Because even yeah. when you were mentioning the live shows that y'all do, it's not like y'all are just doing big name or even media name acts. You guys are, because um, even based on the article that we read about you, it's it's very local grassroots you know people with modest followings and um and that can mean a lot to somebody really just trying to you know get their spaceship off the ground
2: yeah i I mean in that um yeah it is all over the map and especially what comes in here i mean when i was uh busy at the Clyde theater we had everyone from like you know the local rock band that could kind of play opening up for some show that was there maybe a couple hundred people there and then i was mixing for like george clinton and p funk and there was no sound check and they're like here you go and there's like 17 vocal (laughs) mics and i'm like whoa like so you know there's a mix of all that stuff and and that 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 always keeps me on my toes and you know like someone complained i think maybe even got all the way up to executive level complained about the the george clinton show in my mix so i mean at least someone was listening so um but yeah it was crazy it was it was like a it was an insane evening of audio so uh i think i i think i fared well but you know uh i try and give people like if it's someone's you know local band local singer songwriter, whoever rolls in i try and give them the same treatment as i would a big show like that and that's always sort of you know i i I try to you know Try to put some effort into it, so hopefully that they can get the best out of their performance. So,
4: mm-hmm. So let me um,
2: let me ask you, what do you think makes some compressors or
1: EQs more tailored for live sound versus the studio? They don't. <laughs>
2: they don't break. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, roadworthiness is a big thing for any gear that you take out. Um, uh, that is something that needs to be addressed. If you're going to drag something around and put it in a truck or a trailer or in a bus bay or the back of your van, um, it needs to not fall apart. Uh, it needs to be built quite robustly. So a lot of that sort of stuff, um, I mean, the, the way that the world has shifted to digital consoles. There's not as many components. It's not like you have a console and a bunch of EQs and gates and compressors and stuff like that. So, you know, it's usually like an X32 in a road case and that's your audio rig or someone has mm-hmm. like an ear rack with an X32 and some in-ears and a playback rig. So, um, a lot of that stuff I think is if it's packaged well and cabled, right, it can, it can last a long time. The thing that I see that, that kind of puts people out and makes, uh, makes shows less reliable are people that put together like a live rig with an x32 and some ears and they don't really get anyone to wire it up effectively and so it's a mess and nothing's labeled so when you are troubleshooting something it's all like okay mm. i know these cables go somewhere but what do they do and why are they here and so that's something i've seen <laughs> consistently uh with with people that are they're that on mid-level tours that are trying to you know trying to make sure that they have a consistent, you know, rig for themselves and just not having that super dialed in. So, you know, packaging, make sure things are in cases, make sure it's, you know, it's protected enough. You know, if you got any of your units and they're all single rack space or half rack, and they're not bolted together and they're all sagging. I see that so many times. It's just like, Make sure that your stuff's put together really robustly, so that you can drag it around with you and it works at every show. Um, give it a little bit of respect, but <laughs> um, you know. But it, it's it's tricky because you got that fine balance of like what can you afford to take with you, mm-hmm. and then what's going to last. Um, so that's that's that that finding that solution. And I mean, yeah, I can't even tell you the number of the the I can't even tell you how many of those Behringer X32s that Sweetwater sold. But it is insane they're everywhere they're all over the place and that is like definitely an industry standard piece of gear now so you see those and they are not the most roadworthy, and they break and sometimes they have problems so that's sort of one of those things where people can afford to get it it does all the things they need but it might not last and so you know Mm -hmm. just knowing Mm -hmm. the the best thing about that is they're all over the place so you can find Mm -hmm. another one but um you know that that's uh, something i see with live gear and the studio stuff like like i was saying i took some fancy stuff with me and I had it apart probably more than I had it in the rack. So, you know, I had some tube compressors, all the wax melted out of the transformers onto the gear below oh, it. I had a piece of gear where i push it in, then everything would come back. And I had a API compressor where I had the op amps pop out every day. So I had to get in there and push them in and then put little wood blocks inside <laughs> to hold them down. Like, so, you know, I, I, I tackled all of those things for my... Uh, esoteric taste of gear but I don't think I would do it again uh, the, there's enough software that sounds really great that I don't think I would drag a bunch of stuff that breaks around and that's kind of you know repeatability is, is the name of the game especially touring is just having the same thing every day and having it work turning it on and being like yeah that's the same as it was yesterday rather than like I don't know <laughs> it totally sounds wrong so I mean that that's it in, in the consistency game is like you just want mm-hmm. things to be the same at every show
1: Mm-hmm. I just feel like cuz you know you've got um you know, I see like a lot of like like DBX stuff, you know. You see a lot in a lot in a lot of live rigs whereas you don't see as much DBX in the recording studio.
2: Yeah, I mean and that's the and I don't think there's much of that market segment left for actual analog hardware uh in the live world a lot of it's digital processing a lot of things like mm-hmm.
1: the
2: universal audio uh has like a rack mount thing, wave sound grid all those things are just plug-in servers now so people can use the yeah. digital plugins on their live consoles and that's definitely where the world's shifting to um you know i see a lot of people like the rupert neve design stuff is built really well i see that on the road a lot we had some of that with the counting crows and their channel strips and master bus processor and a bunch of that stuff is super super well made and, and robust but you know hmm. um more of it is like sprinkles on top of the cake whereas before it used to be necessity
1: yeah i I, I didn't even think about that but you're like something like the uh what is it the pre studio live like it has you know the effects built into it in, into each channel
2: it's got everything
1: well, that's very convenient i didn't even think about that or realize that that is that is true
2: yeah, and that, I mean, I've been approaching some of my recordings in the studio a little bit more like that, too. I've been using less outboard gear. I was I was an outboard gear um, snob for a while and used a lot and compressed a lot and EQ'd a lot. And I've been going a little bit more straightforward where I've been just going off the mic preamp and, and, and trying to get things to sound how I want them before I dive into a bunch of processing. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which I thought of the other day is kind of similar to a digital console where you're just taking the mic preamp and then doing all of the processing in the console, so I do all my stuff in Pro Tools later, where I do EQ and all that, like tone shaping stuff happens in the computer. So, um, kind of bringing me back to the way I would do a live workflow more. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so you got any any pet peeves working in live sound? Uh,
0: yeah, when it when it sounds bad and it's too loud. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Fair enough now is that when it sounds bad to you or when people are saying sound is subjective right so um
2: yeah i don't know that that and it's kind of weird because we haven't had a lot of live sound lately um but it used to kind of bum me out if i went to see a show of a band that i appreciated and it didn't sound good but then if it did sound good i was really into it and you know Mm -hmm. I, i tried to deliver uh usually an enjoyable show i would hope um Not always the case, but uh, that—that's something that when it gets too loud and it just gets painful, like sound should never be painful. And when it is, that's what (laughs) you know—it causes serious problems. It hurts people and and it makes the really un-unentertaining show. Mm
1: -hmm. And mine is um, pointing the microphone (laughs) at the wedges. (laughs)
2: Don't point the mic at the wedges. (laughs) Yeah, that's a special trick. It works every time. (laughs) Hell no. Yeah, and it's not the monitor guy's fault, so uh, don't look at him. Uh,
0: The church I worked at, they, you know, it was a church. It was a black church. So they wanted very loud, right? And, you know, for the energy. But it was the most boxy place. Like, it it's a straight box. They didn't really have acoustic treatment. They really... um, you know it was it was literally a rectangle this church and they wanted it up so loud but the speakers their wedges at the bottom were old they would go in and out sometimes um and i think the mics we were using i think part of the problem was um the um what do you call it the the rejection on the other side, like the pickup pattern was pretty weak. So it caught almost everything around it. And so anytime I turned it up, I would get really bad feedback. But then the pastor's on stage like, oh, turn it up. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, no. That's not your job. You got to tell him that. Exactly. And I think it was two things. He wanted it louder or he just couldn't hear himself. And after a while, I would just pretend to turn it up. Like I wouldn't even... <laughs> i would just make the motion you know because they can see me right there we're all in the same room so i'll just make the motion that i'm turn i wouldn't even turn it up like no that, i'm not
2: that's a secret live sound move that everybody knows <laughs> in the in the industry they just you just go phantom turn the knob and that's then you just wow yeah, yeah and you give them the head nod and you pretend to turn something and everything's fine and you wait a couple minutes until they complain again but no i mean that's, something <laughs> that's funny i mean i mean go ahead sorry
0: no that was that's hilarious because i would never yeah organically i found that out but you're saying like no that's what you do
2: (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's a a there's a large amount of psychology that goes into dealing with musicians on a stage and just trying to keep them happy without you know trying to ruin the sound too so Mm -hmm. and i mean you're talking about a venue that doesn't sound good i mean that that's a whole nother topic we can spend hours talking about about you know uh timing and tuning pas and you know eqing spaces to make them you know at least make the speakers work the best for the space and then some of those spaces should be treated you know like there's there's a there's a church in town here that was helping out that's sort of like in a gymnasium thing i'm like well this is always going to sound like we're in a gym like there's not a lot we can do about (laughs) this like you can't you know without doing treatment and stuff so a lot of those things in live sound, you have variables you can't control. We're in the studio; you can put blankets up, you can put someone in a vocal booth, you can you know do that sort of stuff. So, that is something that I have to say about live sound that is is I wouldn't say a pet peeve, but sort of like a fun obstacle to overcome all of the time is that the venue you can't really change. You got to deal with the speakers yeah. in that space and and figure out some tricks and and figure out a way to make it you know at least as loud as you need it to be without being you know horrible sounding. So, mm.
1: absolutely. <laughs> all right so um last question here. You got any tips for anyone who wants to get into live sound?
0: Run away. I'm just playing. Go <laughs> the other direction.
2: <laughs> no, just do it as much as you possibly can. Uh everywhere. Uh churches, bars, venues, uh volunteer, try and get a gig at a local sound company, um, local, you know, performance theaters, uh theater groups, stuff like that. I mean, I don't know the best way to get good at it is to do it a million times. Just keep mm-hmm. doing it, get around it, just keep, you know, learn from your mistakes, um, have a good attitude. I mean, that—that that, that mm-hmm. is something that, you know, will go way further than you being a skilled audio engineer. If you're, if you're you know, in, interested in doing a good job but don't have the skills to do it yet, people will help you and they will share information with you. So I would say just get mm-hmm. into it and get around it and, you know, let people know that you want to do it. <laughs> I think that that's probably the best way to do it and just be around, you know, find people that know what they're doing and ask a million questions until they stop answering
0: them. <laughs> yeah. So it's the golden method. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, I think we'll wrap this episode up. Uh, Sean, it was great having you. This was a great Thank conversation. You. Very much. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate you guys having me. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, Yeah, live sound is just is a world that i don't even <laughs> step over into very very rarely i mean I've yeah, said, they um, are different
2: um, let's let's <laughs> hope that everyone gets to enjoy a lot more live sound coming up soon i think that that's a, yes, I think definitely. some of that soon so definitely wouldn't y'all have any um, streams planned coming up yeah, nothing coming up. We got Gear Fest online, uh, which is in June, uh, which we're still putting together a bunch of content for, which should be pretty cool. Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of the next big thing in the Sweetwater world. Is we're uh, we're kind of getting all that stuff together to, to have a little bit of a uh, hopefully awesome content blast for Gear Fest weekend. Mm-hmm.
1: And and for everyone listening,
2: like you definitely
1: want to check out Gear Fest because it is the one time. Of the year that everything is on sale. Like 98% of everything is on sale. So a lot of the purchases I make is stuff that never <laughs> goes on sale because I know I can get it on sale during Gear Fest.
0: Yes. So. Thank you, Sweetwater, for upping my credit limit just in time <laughs> to blow it all at
2: Gear Fest. Yeah. Keep an eye out for those emails. Um. <laughs> Uh, june 25th and 26th is when gear fest is going to be the online version so um check it out um i think we should have some cool stuff mm-hmm. they used
1: to and, and i know we uh, talked about fifty sevens and 58s for a little bit they used to have um 57s for $57 and 58s for $58 during uh gear fest yeah which is always fun
2: yeah, I don't. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not privy to any of the sales beforehand. But I know that we try and get rid of all of our demo and B stock stuff at uh, at great prices, and just try and you know try and make it some sort of an event. I mean, this the past year has kind of been weird for events, so we're just trying mm-hmm. to trying to make the best of it. So I think it'll be I think it'll be something worth checking out, though.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Where
0: can we keep up with you? Where can we find you and stay in touch with you?
2: Uh, you can uh, get a hold of me uh, sweetwaterstudios.com under the team tab uh, you can find me there and then on Instagram at uh, Sean Dealey and uh, sort of keep that updated with some uh, cool pics of gear and what I got going on so dope all right well, everyone make sure
1: that you uh, check this out on the Facebook group you want to comment and discuss this episode all right and I'm Zar.
0: I'm Pat I am Desiree
1: And it's O'Shea. And we'll catch y'all next episode.
4: Peace.
0: Hey, Faders Up Podcast listeners. Hey, thank you so much for listening to today's episode, but let's keep the discussion going. Join our Facebook group at Faders Up Podcast to share your thoughts and opinions on today's topics and interact directly with the cast.